Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Actress and comedian Sashir Zameda may be most familiar to comedy fans from her four years on Saturday Night Live, but she's kept busy on screen since then, too, co-starring for two seasons on Hulu's Woke and for the past three seasons on ABC's Home Economics. She's also due to co-star alongside Katherine Hahn in the upcoming Marvel Cinematic Universe series Agatha Coven of Chaos for Disney+. Sashir sat down with me earlier this summer before the actors went on strike, talking about her early days and nights improvising with Nicole Byer, working for Disney as a mascot in college, how her SNL time prepared her for what has come next, including her decision to release her second stand-up comedy special, The First Woman, with 800-pound Gorilla Media and YouTube. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! I have plenty of questions for you, but last things first, I know you're in Los Angeles now. Have you performed at the quote unquote new UCB? I actually have. Yeah. Um, it <laughs> still it... looks like the old one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I say quote unquote new. I mean, it's, it's the same building, new owners. Does it feel any different? Um, I think it's like a little glitzier. I think they have like a new computer check-in system and, there's more rules, I think, other than like, I don't know, the, you can just walk in and do what you want feel of right. it. I think that those things are different, but in general, like the performances are all still the same and still a place where you can like cultivate new weird things on stage and have people come see it. So yeah, I think it's still good. It's still got some of the UCB spirit in there. Well, part of the reason it has new owners though is because it felt like it needed a new spirit. And, you know, I admit my question was kind of leading. It was kind of a loaded question because, you know, my first knowledge of you was through uh, the wonderful improv trio Doppelganger. Yeah. Which, if my memory serves me correctly, had to come up outside of UCB before getting accepted within UCB. This is very true. Yeah, we all auditioned for house teams, didn't make it. (laughs) It was me, Nicole Byer, Keisha Zoller, and we were performing together on our own. And we were like, you know what? Let's just like do our own thing. And so we started just like crushing it at other shows and hosting our own shows. And then we were doing Cage Match, which is like a competition between two different teams and the audience votes on who they want to see next week. And we had like a summer tear. And I think the people at the theater were kind of like, oh, these these women are undeniably great. <laughs> Maybe they should be here. <laughs> so then eventually we got our own slot at the theater, which was really, really cool. So how long did it take the three of you to perform outside of UCB before you were accepted first in Cage Match mm. and then as part of it? You know, I think not that long. I feel okay. like I feel like maybe a year or maybe shorter. I can't yeah. remember, but so we were, made ways pretty quickly. Okay, so where were you performing in that first year then? What, um, what venues did you have to find? 
We, gosh, we found some random place in Brooklyn. It's some weird art space that mm. had a very like spacious hall where we could set up chairs and we just did shows there. Okay. I wish, and we had, and we shared that space with this sketch group called Boat. And yeah, we would have these like fun shows slash parties. And mm-hmm. then, and then we just perform anywhere else like Triple Crown. <laughs> oh, we also had a res- residency in some random theater in the theater district. I really can't remember what it was called. Okay. But yeah, we would perform anywhere. Just like if you have a bathroom that's big enough, we'll perform there. We were just, we were like, just hungry to be on stage. Right. Well, I, I mean, I bring this all this up, you know, one to like set the stage for like your comedy origin story, but also, you know, I know you're involved with like the ACLU women's rights program mm-hmm. and your, your special, your new special talks a lot about, you know, rethinking. Uh, <laughs> women as like equal members of the human of the human race. So it just reminds me of how, you know, you Keisha and, and Nicole had to fight to be accepted and how the UCB like overlooked the three of you. They initially overlooked uh, Abby and Alana, the broad who had formed broad city. It's like, mm-hmm. they, even though Amy Poehler is one of the great, still great UCB four members, they had like a pretty abysmal track record when it came to, opening the doors fully. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like when people choose like successors or people under them, they usually people pick people who remind them of themselves or like someone's sensibility that seems similar to them. And if a lot of the people who are making decisions are men or white men, they might hey. not. <laughs> no offense, no offense. <laughs> they may not be able to expand their viewpoint wide enough to see that other art or other types of humor are valuable to Mm -hmm. that stage. And thankfully, you know, we got rejected, but then we did get accepted. And I think, you know, eventually things changed and they changed a lot now. Like I go to UCB now and I see so much diversity, which is so beautiful and, and hopeful, but yeah, it took, it took some time to get there. And I think once you see a lot of diversity succeeding, then you're like, oh, well, we got to get on board or, or else we're going to be like a, a dinosaur. Like, we're going to be behind the times. <laughs> right. So I can't say that I can take credit, but I also can't say that I can't take credit for getting uh, Jason Zinneman when he was the newly installed comedy critic at the New York Times. One of the first times I saw him in person was at the press, quote unquote, press conference for the 2012 Dull Close Marathon. And mm-hmm. after that ended, he was going to get up and go. And I said, no, you should stick around. There's some great groups. And and Doppelganger had the 6.30 p.m. Yeah. Friday slot. And he stayed and he watched he watched you three. He watched the Stepfathers. And then he ended up like writing a whole thing about the Stepfathers. And then a few months later, singled you out specifically when he first wrote about Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Thank you for your contribution. Thank you for <laughs> telling him this I'm day. an ally. I'm an ally. I'm an ally. <laughs> Co-conspirator. <laughs> I mean, yeah, UCB did wonders for my comedy career. And the fact that people did go to that theater to look for talent or to look for what's happening or what's new or what's rising mm-hmm. was incredible. And yeah, I mean, I think, thank goodness people did see me. And then there was a stir and like, 
people were talking about like what could be happening on SNL and, and also Anthony King, who was the artistic director when I started at UCB talked to the producers at SNL and was like, Hey, you guys should check out this improv group doppelganger. They're really great. And like, you probably could use at least one or not all of them <laughs> on the show. And yeah, it kind of began that journey of auditioning for the show. We all auditioned like, a couple years in a row, and then eventually I got on in 2014. Right. and But, I mean, the circumstances of your hiring, kind of, like, to segue with the first woman, like, you weren't the first Black woman on no. Saturday Night Live. I was but, the fifth. <laughs> but in a way, it because of all the white-hot scrutiny, it, it must have felt like you were sort, sort of had to be the first woman, even though you weren't. Yeah, I think because... It seemed like people like weren't paying attention and then all of a sudden they were. They were like no one was like tracking how many black women were on the show until like it became a thing. And then they're mm-hmm. like, Oh, wait a minute, I actually don't remember <laughs> how many there have been and why isn't there one on currently? Why is Keenan always wearing dresses? <laughs> and right. and so then there became this like I don't know, you know, the news latches onto some things. So people were like, Yeah, why why isn't there a black woman? So then SNL was like, We will work on this. And then they, I was already auditioning for the show at that point, right. but you know, but they, they decided to make it a soul thing where they would find a black woman that year. And yeah, it was, it was a actually very fast audition process compared to the other years. Like I feel like I put together a tape in November and then in December I went into the studio met everybody, had the interviews. And then I think I knew in January, like first week of January and started the second week of January, um, which is not usually how that goes. But I think because (laughs) there was such a public outroar about this, Mm -hmm. they wanted to move fast. Right. And then, you know, historically, everyone who's been on the cast talks about how grueling and pressure filled and neurotic or anxiety ridden that first year can be because you're not only getting used to just the the schedule of it but you're also fighting for stage time and there's this atmosphere you know you can tell me if I'm completely wrong but but there's also this atmosphere where you're like I don't know if it's Lorne or I don't know who's creating the atmosphere but there's this atmosphere where you're worried about your job security that whole time I mean, did, did you feel that even more so because of the circumstances of your hiring? It's funny. I think because of the circumstances and because I just, I got plopped into it in the middle of an existing season. Right. I don't think I had time to really process anything. Okay. So I, I think, I think I felt things residually, but like, as it was happening, I just like was go, go, go. And so and I actually had a pretty successful first season. Like I was, I was in a lot of sketches. I was getting things on and, and yeah, it was a whirlwind. So I think there, the atmosphere you're talking about is there <laughs> and no one knows who's creating it. I don't know mm-hmm. one. <laughs> and, and it's also like not, I don't think it's on purpose. I think it just is a strange environment and you are going to, since you're hiring comedians, you're going to have people who are um, anxious and neurotic. So even if nothing's happening, I've definitely had weeks where I'm like, Oh, I'm being iced out. And that's like, so not what's happening because everyone's so involved with their own thing that it doesn't have anything to do with you. So really by the end of my time there, I 
feel like I got to a very Zen place <laughs> where I was like, Oh, none of this has anything to do with me. <laughs> I can, it can, but mm-hmm. I don't have to like analyze everything that's happening and think that it's an attack or I'm wronged or like I'm on the shit list this week. It, like it, there's really no rhyme or reason to any of it. And trying to predict anything would just drive you crazy. So how did that Zen like attitude help you when you left to embark on what was life in your career going to be like after the show? Oh, it helped immensely. I mean, after I left that show, I felt like I could do anything, like literally anything. I was like, the things that I've accomplished on the show, like anything is cake compared to that. Mm -hmm. And it, and it's, did feel that way. Um, yeah, I felt more comfortable like expressing my views because that's what you have to do on the, on SNL is like, you have to like pitch an idea, but you also have to defend it and like, like say why you think it should be on the show. Not all the mm-hmm. time, but like I've had moments where I had to do that. So yeah, I felt very confident in like, well, these are my views and this is how I feel about them. This is why I think it'd be good for the show or like having a clear idea of like, of just production, because if you did get a sketch on the show, you were in charge of what the costumes looked like. You you had say on what the set looked like. You had say on you just you, you didn't direct the episode like the sketch, but you did kind of help produce it. So I do feel like that helped me get a larger scope on production in general. And yeah, I, I just feel like all those things I learned and, and put in my toolkit at SNL helped me for every single job I've ever had after right and talking about learning that that the business isn't doing things to you necessarily or because of you your first stand-up special pizza mind Mm -hmm. was for uh the streaming platform that uh (laughs) we all know and love and uh (laughs) close to our hearts CISO. Uh, yes (laughs) which you must have thought at the time was a great move because you were working at nbc Mm-hmm. NBC Universal owned and launched this platform. Yeah, it made sense <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but like as, as someone who who had CISO done to you, what, <laughs> what was your sense of please make some sense out of CISO to me or to my listeners? Yeah, I think CISO, you know, it was NBC's attempt at a streaming service in a time where I think people were kind of tired of getting new streaming services. And even those new ones are still popping up. I just think it was a little nebulous for people to get. And, and I still think it was a good idea. You know, it had so much comedy on there, but alas, <laughs> think things, things come and go and it went away, but then my special got put on Amazon prime, which is great because everyone has Amazon prime. So I do feel like more people got to see it when it had a second coming mm-hmm. on a different platform, okay. but it was the, a, th- a, a thing that housed a lot of people's stuff for a minute, and then it just didn't. Yeah, I feel like with with the you know current writer strike and the potential actor strike, which may or may not be happening when people listen to this uh, a month from now, that CISO would have had a much better chance today with the way that the industry is mm-hmm. kind of reorganizing and rethinking. It might have been one of those fast channels. No. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel like other 
streaming sites tried it, like Quibi, like you know, trying to like, give you like little fast clips. Well, Quibi, which also are Quibi a R- word? What is Quibi? What is... <laughs> I know. <laughs> was that even a thing? It, they tried. You know, it was quick bites <laughs> and uh, quickly bitten. But you know, obviously, people love watching comedy, and mm-hmm. it's all over TikTok. It's all over Instagram. Reels are really big. So if you can give like little doses or chunks, people will find it. But it was it was in a place. <laughs> it was all like in a place on on CISO. There was comedy specials. There were comedy shows. There was. Do they have kids in the hall? They have some. They had Monty Python. Yeah, they had a bunch of British. Yeah. Can you, yeah, they had. They tried to be like the new version of com- Comedy Central in terms yeah. of being a central place for comedy, but people didn't want to pay three ninety nine <laughs> for it, which seems crazy I now. I know. Based on yeah. what people are willing to pay for everything else, but yeah, they probably but, would do. But well now, now the but... infrastructure is built for advertising, so they might have been able to get a, like it could be part of Peacock even. Yeah. This is true. Yeah, Peacock's but, now a whole thing that I think is doing well. Uh was that part of the calculus for you to do this new special with eight hundred pound gorilla and YouTube? Yeah, I I feel like the first time around I'm so proud of my first special. I I just felt a little um helpless when it came to the control of my special because it did bounce around. Like there was no really like infrastructure or like uh, language around what happens if this network is defunct. So, (laughs) (laughs) so it kind of got passed around to a few different platforms and I didn't have a say in that. And so this time around, I really wanted more ownership of it. And 800 pound has been great about like, letting me <laughs> have control. And also they've done this a lot where they've helped people produce specials and, and self-release it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm excited to do it in a way that feels like I know exactly what's happening. I know where it's going to go. I know how much money I spent. I know why I spent the money. Like it, it's, it feels so much different than the first time around where I had other people telling me what was happening with the work that I created. Right. I guess, you know, it's kind of like you say in the new special, I never have to experience these things again. Yes. Yeah. I learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You learned, you learned all your lessons, quote, the hard, I'm saying the hard way. quote unquote, at least I'm not doing the finger thing. Um, <laughs> but about learning, you know, learning these things so you don't have to repeat them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did learn a lot from the first experience and then I learned there was a lot of things I didn't want to do again. So I am very excited about this new version of, of releasing my content to people and excited to see what happens. Not to give too much away, but mm-hmm. um, halfway through the special, you talk about the, the importance and the need to normalize conversations about uh, women's health and uh, bodily autonomy. Shall I, yeah. shall yeah. I say? That's a great way to phrase it. Yes. <laughs> I have this, I don't know why I still have this memory from junior high school. Maybe it's because I didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. So I, it was perhaps my first bit of empathy for, for my classmates who didn't fit in. But I have this distinct memory of one of my eighth grade classmates and how she was just bullied and ostracized all people called her Barbie because Mm -hmm. apparently she had, 
experimented with a Barbie doll. Mm. <laughs> and to think, well, that was, okay, that's what life was like in 1983 or 1984. Yeah. And then 40 years later, to see and hear you on stage, just kind of embracing the lint roller or the <laughs> Literally embracing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, sometimes the word the improv it, it's the improv it just, you know, um don't think um but the way you you yeah you you talk about it you joke about it you embrace it but then you get the audience to talk about like so for me though like 40 years later seeing witnesses is like oh my god i wish i wish that young girl from my class could see this yeah yeah i do too i i, I do feel like I love getting the audience involved with that and asking, yeah, like what have you sexually ex like experimented with? Because we don't talk about it that much and we should, because it's so normal. Like, but women's sexuality and sexual health has been so secretive and uh, demonized and, and you shouldn't feel bad because you're curious. And I actually do feel like, in different crowds that I've had where I ask people, tell me, tell me what you've used before. I get young people who are like excited to say something. And I get older women too, who are like, I've never told anyone this. They were like, I, I never, I guess I have used something, but I tucked it deep down in a part of my brain that I didn't want to ever I access say again. Tucked deep down somewhere else. Ah, no. <laughs> well, maybe. I don't, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice for people to like recall those memories and be like, oh, I wasn't weird for that. That's like, that's normal human behavior. And we should be curious and we should be talking about this because uh, there are so many societal constraints or laws that are trying to restrict our knowledge of our own bodies. And I don't think that's healthy for anybody. Do you get the sense, not just when you perform this for the special, but as you're performing on the road, do you get the sense that like generationally that the, the, the girls and the people of Gen Z are, are more open about this kind of stuff? Definitely. Yeah. It definitely seems like the younger generations are, are almost like aggressive, <laughs> aggressively open. Um, Cause they probably have been raised by people who were shamed when they were younger. And so I think there's a like, um, active reversal of that, like a, like a shedding of, of needing to feel shame. We can talk about this. We can be open in this household. So we're, it's creating younger people who are, who are radically open. And I think that's so beautiful and lovely. And I can't wait to see how that changes the world. Cause it already is. It's already, people are already like changing policy and, and being active in their own community because they don't see a problem with that <laughs> because they think that's actually a normal thing to do. And I think that's beautiful. You know, we're also kind of starting to rethink other things. Um, not just, or sexuality and gender and, and that stuff. But also I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how there's Disney has the new live action ver version of the little mermaid. Yeah, I saw that. And, and I wondered what you thought as someone who in college <laughs> Disney. Yes. Yeah. I was a, a character performer. <laughs> Were, did you ever get to be the little mermaid? 
I certainly never got to be Little Mermaid, and I was there just a hair before the Frog Princess came out, so I couldn't be Tiana. I did play a Padawan in the Jedi Training Academy, so that was the one time my face could be out. <laughs> Otherwise, Otherwise you were, you it, were I was Pluto or Eeyore. <laughs> But I think it's beautiful. I I watched I, Little Mermaid was one of my favorite movies as a kid, and so I wanted to see this reiteration of it, and mm-hmm. and I thought it was so cool to see not only a black girl playing Ariel, but like so many different races throughout the whole movie. And because why not? It's already fantasy. It's already fake. Right. Like may as well put anyone in there and. And then when I went to the theater, I saw all these little black girls with dolls and costumes and stuff. Like, they were just in awe at what they were seeing on screen. And I think that's so lovely and beautiful because it just adds to the magic and adds to the possibility of what you think can be possible. And I think I would have loved that if I was a kid. Right. So when you were actually working at Disney, did you feel like you could be... Any of anyone, or did you feel like you were pigeonholed because of your race or your gender that you had to be certain? You could only be certain yeah. people, um, even even within a fantasy world. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they are. Disney has a pretty like set thing. Although I'm pretty sure one of my friends who is a black woman was Tinkerbell one time, which was okay. so cool. And so I think they are like opening up some of the bounds that they have created over the years. But, you know, it's a a huge corporation. So I'm sure for years and years and years, they were like, well, we have to set it this way because this is what the fans are used to. I mean, like, we had training where everyone had to sign the signature the exact same because if someone who came 10 years Uh, ago brings their autograph book, they want the, the Pluto signature to match the Pluto signature they get today. So there's a lot of you know, strict rules that they have, but I do think that they are trying to open up some of the diversity and the, the things that they're allowing in front of the camera and back behind too. Who would you want to play in, in the Disney world now? That's a good question. Hmm. Um, I always like Jasmine from Aladdin. Well, I mean, (laughs) as I, as I asked the question, though, you already are in the Disney fantasy yes, world very because much so. <laughs> you're you're part of the Marvel, yeah, universe. Yes. What's in two different shows? Is that right? One, one, live yes, action, yeah, one animated. Yeah, I'm, I uh, play Adria, who is Moon Girl's mom in the series Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and that's a, a very fun cartoon, which I also would have loved if I was a kid, just like a 13 year old black superhero on roller skates with afro puffs like that's so cool and and then i also am in the wandavision spinoff uh we don't have a title yet but as of now it's been agatha and the covenant of chaos but yeah it's like perfect it feels so right (laughs) because it's like so witchy and spooky and woman and sexy and gritty and it's just like so much that's like up my alley and I, yeah, it's truly a dream job. Have you told Catherine Hahn or any of the other people on set about the, the reality of, of the broomsticks? 
I have. Yes, I have. And did they incorporate? No spoilers, <laughs> but they, did they incorporate that into the Agatha series at all? Unfortunately, no. I actually no. talked to the creator of the show, and she was like, "We are also aware of that fact, and we did try to think about how to put it into the show, but mm-hmm. it just didn't really fit. And also, this is still Disney, so." <laughs> <laughs> Okay. One of the things that you also talk about in your special is getting people to rethink Amelia Earhart. Yeah. Which I ha- I apparently hadn't thought enough about it. You you really educated me on that. But I wonder are you also hoping that people rethink Sashir Zaveda? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. I I am cuz I think people, you know, they see me play different characters on different shows or they know me from SNL or whatever. Um, but I, I feel so like strongly in my voice right now, even compared to my last special. Like I just, I, I feel like I've evolved as a person and my comedy's evolved to a place that I feel really proud of. So yeah, I, I would like people to watch this and get a better idea of me as the person as the comedian as the storyteller and yeah think think of me as this person <laughs> as this issues made and how important has it been that that 12 years after starting doppelganger as an independent improv comedy trio that you and nicole are still so buddy buddy oh, even it's... if you're on different paths it's the best. I mean, we're, we still work together. We still, we have a podcast called Best right. Friends where we talk about friendship. And yeah, it's, it's so wonderful that we literally started in the same place and our careers have grown together and like next to each other concurrently. And it's, it's also just important to have somebody who like, gets it through and through who like knows where you came from and sees where you are and, and can give you advice or take advice or commiserate with. It's just, it's beautiful. And I'm so glad that we've had each other for this ride. I haven't been uh, your best friend for the, for the ride, but I've enjoyed watching it from afar. Sashir, thank you again for joining me and congrats once again on the new special. Thank you. I really appreciate that. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.